By any standards, it was a shocking episode. Jacob had settled on the outskirts of the town of Shechem, ruled by Hamar. Dina, Jacob's daughter, goes out to see the town. Shechem, Hamar's son, sees her, abducts and rapes her, and then falls in love with her and wants to marry her. He begs his father, get me this girl as my wife. Jacob hears about this and keeps quiet, but his sons are furious. She must be rescued and the people punished. Hamar and his son come to visit the family and ask them to give their consent to the marriage. Jacob's sons pretend to take the offer seriously. We'll settle among you, they say, on one condition, that all your males are circumcised. Hamar and Shechem bring back the proposal to the people of the town, and they agree. On the third day after the circumcision, when the pain was at its height, and the men incapacitated, Shimon and Levi, Dina's brothers, enter the town and kill all the males. It was a terrible retribution. Jacob rebukes his sons. You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But Shimon and Levi reply, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? There is a real and substantive difference of opinion between Jacob and his sons. They believe that Dina had to be rescued, whatever the cost, in human life. Jacob believed that the cost was just too high. There's a hint in the text that Shimon and Levi were right in what they did, were justified. Unusually, the Torah adds three times a kind of commentary on the moral gravity of the situation. Here it is, listen carefully. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very wroth because he had wrought a vile deed in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And then again, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. It's as if the Torah were agreeing with their judgment. And yet Jacob condemns what they did. And although he says no more at the time, it remains burningly in his mind. Many years and 15 chapters later, on his deathbed, he curses the two brothers for their behavior. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Who was right? The argument between Jacob and his sons recurred in the Middle Ages between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Maimonides takes the side of the brothers. In his law code, the Mishnah Torah, explains that the establishment of justice and the rule of law is one of the seven Noahide laws binding on all humanity. Here is how he defines it. How are Gentiles commanded to establish law courts? They're required to appoint judges and officers in every region to rule in accordance with the enforcement of the other six commands, to warn the citizenry concerning these laws, and to punish any transgressor with death by the sword. And it is on this basis that all the people of Shechem were guilty of death, the hands of Shimon and Levi, because Shechem, their prince, abducted and raped Dina. They saw this and knew about it, but did not bring him to justice.
In other words, Maimonides holds that all the townsmen were guilty by way of collective responsibility. The inhabitants of Shechem, knowing that their prince had committed a crime and failing to bring him to court, were collectively guilty of injustice. Nachmanides disagrees. He holds that the Noahide command to institute justice is a positive obligation to establish laws and courts and judges, but there is no principle of collective responsibility, nor is there liability to death for failure to implement the command, nor could they be. Because after all, Nachmanides' point is simple, if Shimon and Levi were justified the way Maimonides argues, why did Jacob criticize them at the time and later curse them on his deathbed? The argument is unresolved. We know there's a principle of collective Jewish responsibility in Jewish law. Kol Yisrael, Arevin, Zebazer, all Jews are sureties are collectively responsible for one another. The question at issue, though, is whether this applies to every society, or does it only apply to Jews and Judaism? Is it because of the peculiar nature of the covenant between God and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, when the people pledged themselves individually and collectively to keep the law and to ensure that it was kept? Or is collective responsibility a feature of all societies? Maimonides says it is. We're responsible not only for our own conduct, but for those around us among whom we live. This flows, he seemed to be saying, from the nature of moral obligation. If an act is wrong, then not only must I not do it, I must, if I can, stop others from doing it too. And if I fail to do so, I share in the guilt. We would call this nowadays the guilt of the bystander. Here is how the Talmud puts it. Rav and Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Chaviva taught the following. Whoever can forbid his household to commit a sin, but doesn't do so, is seized for the sin of his household. If he can forbid his fellow citizens, he's seized for the sins of his fellow citizens. If the whole world, then he is seized for the sins of the whole world. According to this, we are guilty for the wrongs of others that we could have prevented, but did not. Clearly, however, the issue is complex, and it needs nuance. There's a difference between a perpetrator and a bystander. It's one thing to commit a crime, another to witness a crime, and fail to prevent it. We might hold the bystander guilty, but not in the same degree. The Talmud uses the phrase, a bystander is seized. This may mean simply that he's morally guilty. He may be punished by the heavenly court in this world or the next. It doesn't mean that he can be summoned to a human court and sentenced for criminal negligence. The issue famously arose in connection with the German people and the Holocaust, with the German people collectively guilty. The philosopher Karl Jaspers made a distinction between the moral and legal guilt of the perpetrators and what he called the metaphysical guilt of the bystanders. He said this, There exists a solidarity among men as human beings that makes each co-responsible for every wrong and every injustice in the world, especially if a crime is committed in his presence or with his knowledge. If I fail to do whatever I can to prevent them, I too am guilty. If I was present at the murder of others without risking my life to prevent it, I feel guilty in a way not adequately conceivable either legally, politically or morally that I live after such a thing has happened, weighs upon me as indelible guilt. 
So there is real guilt. But, says Jaspers, it's not legal guilt. Shimon and Levi may have been right in thinking that the men of Shechem were guilty of doing nothing when their prince abducted and assaulted Dina, but that doesn't mean that they were entitled to execute summary justice by killing all the males. Jacob was right in seeing this as a brutal assault. In this case, Nachmanides' position seems more compelling than that of Maimonides. One of Israel's most profound moralists, the late Yeshayahu Leibovitz, wrote that though there may have been an ethical justification for what Shimon and Levi did, there's also an ethical postulate, which is not itself a matter of rationalization and which calls forth a curse upon all these justified and valid considerations. In other words, there may be actions for which a moral case may be made, but nonetheless are still accursed. That's what Jacob meant when he cursed his sons. Collective responsibility is one thing. Collective punishment is another. Shabbat Shalom.